Hi, everybody. I'm Brandon Paul Eels. This is Reading Out Loud. Once again, I am joined on Skype by our producer, Ryan P. Duke. How are you, sir? I am still me. You are so cute. I just can't stand it. I just want to pinch your little cheeks. Once again, we are not in the Reading Out Loud studio, mostly because, well, secretly, there's no such place. It's, it's Why do you reveal these things? Because, you know, I'm... We're shrouded in mystery over here, Brandon. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. There is, it's actually nine places. It's a chain. It's like... <laughs> Stop on by. It's like the Fuddruckers of Studios. Not a ton of them. But there's one, you know, pretty much every top 25 market has a Reading Out Loud studio. You've never actually been inside one, but you know it's there, and you're pretty sure yeah. it's certain hamburgers. I'm pretty sure. I bet Reading Out Loud Studios has good wings. Probably a salad bar. That's what I bet. It feels like a salad bar place. Oh, so <laughs> here's a little <laughs> tangent. We went to this place. I won't say what it is, but it was basically like a Japanese sizzler. And it was like uh, like sushi buffet and like seafood. But I mean, it was like Japanese food, but like a sizzler. You know what I mean? Just like it's been sitting out and it's just a shitty salad bar. And I'm having a lot of trouble imagining kitschy Japanese decor. It was still a lot of saddles. Lots of <laughs> just old <laughs> sepia tone nope. pictures. It's got to be farm related, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Was it was like a... It was like a Captain D's, nets, plastic lobsters. A lot of rice <laughs> capturing instruments. I haven't raised rice before. I wonder if that shows. Mm, no. I raise, I raise and breed rice. <laughs> Not on my resume. Right. Do we have things to talk about? Oh, bringing me down, Duke. <laughs> you guys, I'm a little drunk on... Uh, relief, maybe. This is the end of a very, very long season. This is the longest season. I'm, this, is, this is hard work. Cranking yeah, out these episodes every single week. Oh, man. I don't know how other podcasts do it. I think it's their job. That is that is just stupid. Is just how, do, how do people make this a job? I don't get it. I don't, I'm a voice actor. I work maybe an hour and a half a week. So having to crank this out, I mean, I'm pushing two I'm and a half, a, two and a half, three hours a week. Yeah, and I'm but a lowly rice farmer. <laughs> really, only so much. But y'all, this is a big, it was a big, uh, this is the last episode of the season, and I'm super excited about it. While, hang on. A couple episodes ago, I totally forgot to thank Lori Haverkamp, who uh, was kind enough to help us out Uh with the recording of Erica Price's Security. Um, so Lori, you know, uh, we love you madly and I'm so sorry, I forgot to thank you. And uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I think she's the worst, but. Executive producer, Ryan. <laughs> I love to be nice to people. I have executive at the front of my title. <laughs> Don't you know? I run a podcast that has tens of listeners. So many dozens. <laughs> oh, speaking, uh, I'd like to now talk to all 12 of you who are listening. Uh, thank you so much for the submissions that you have sent in. And uh, as of my count, you have, uh, I think, about 
four hours to send in uh, your remaining submissions. Uh, June 30th is the cutoff day. Um, we've gotten a ton of, of excellent stuff so far, and we really look uh, we're looking forward to getting getting in there and uh, and figuring out uh, what we're gonna do for season four, which is gonna be back in October. So we are coming back uh, with a whole new cut of stories, a whole new selection. Um, and, and we're really excited to, uh, to mess around. We're going to maybe, we haven't, haven't cleared this yet, but I'm going to try to actually increase the output, um, for reading out loud. I, I think I want to try to work three and a half to four hours. A week. So nice. that, that's, that's what I'm going for. Bold. You know, it's going to be, uh, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta dream big. You gotta dream big. I mean, speaking, speaking of you know, working hard and mm-hmm. making you sweat. You know, we're reaching the end of my you know, five-part serial. That is true. And the thing about this is that this all had to be finished before the season started, and it was very nearly not. Dude, this... You guys, putting together this five-part serial was... It was fun. I mean, first of all, it was a lot of fun, because, I, you know, Ryan's my favorite writer. I really like reading every everything he writes. Um, so when, when it was like crunch time and it was really time to record everything and, and get it all done. And he had only sent us maybe to up to part three. That, that was, uh, that was, that was a stressful. <laughs> yeah. You know, so the thing is that we had set out to write something maybe half as long. As yeah. We had, what, That's what it true. Became. And I mean, and what you can probably tell, especially when you reach the end here, we do have an end. There mm-hmm. is a legitimate ending here that we feel yeah. really comfortable with. The However, title of this uh, this part is the end. I mean, you know, because I need to dial it. <laughs> Spoiler. Oops. It's, it's over way, it's after done. this one. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't mean to tell you. It ends in the end. Jon um, Snow is a Baratheon. <laughs> and I want to ruin anything for you. <sighs> yeah, it was a, it was, this was a beast, man. Tactus, yeah, man. You've done a, a bang up job. And you'll on see, cranking you know, um, this is uh, an ongoing work. There's a lot more to fill in here. And, you know, I think I've got, um, well, a fleshed out, you know, the bones of a novel here. And I, I, I'm very proud of what it's become. That's um, what I'm very excited about because you're going to make this. A bigger piece because like some of the some of the the, the people that we've met uh need to be you know you fe- you've told me you felt like you wanted to flesh them out into uh yeah you know brand that didn't exist before we started we're talking about we're not talking about real people we're talking about characters but you know they feel real enough to me and now you know we need to go and we need to know more about them and I mean, yeah. you guys have become acquainted with them and you know characters disappeared you know where's the dad now and what happened to uh what happened to maddie true that mon frere all right here it is the finale of reading out loud season three and our ongoing season long story unless it's about me part five the end by ryan p Duke. i'm sorry kingston i'm just i'm not comfortable with all this you know sometimes i feel out of place what's that Kingston asks. He wades over closer to Cheryl. Sorry, I can't hear you over the jets. He pours more champagne in her glass and plops in another strawberry. 
Cheryl pulls her gaze away from the hypnotic bubbling of the hot tub and takes a deep chlorine breath as she scans the lush greenery of the rooftop deck. Her eyes follow a gull from east to west until it disappears behind a a taller building of all glass, reflecting back the darkening sky. Lightning flashes in the purple clouds behind it. She turns back to Kingston. She sips her champagne. Uh, Nothing. You know me. I'm just feeling self-conscious. Kingston reaches for her glass, takes a sip, and places it on the concrete. With his hand on the small of her back, he pulls her to the center of the tub. And there he wraps his arms around her, pressing their hips together. His eyes survey every bit of her that he can see, cataloging and scoring. She's wearing that yellow string bikini that he bought her because she kept forgetting her one piece at home. He bites his lower lip and he makes a sucking sound with his tongue and teeth before breathing in sharply, like you might do after tasting a fine scotch. No one as fine as you should ever feel self-conscious. He leans in to kiss her neck. She lets him, turning her head away to watch the distant storm. He holds her hand between thumb and forefinger and guides it to his chest and trails her nails down his stomach before he pulls it to his groin. She pushes him away and reaches for her champagne. Look, I, I feel the way I feel. Cheryl crosses her arms over her breasts. This place, a rooftop deck atop a luxury high-rise, his place, the sparkling white and stainless steel Lakeview condo, It's all so different from what she's used to. Cheryl lives a comfortable but modest life. She's an actor. You may have seen her in the Falter Demon Players production of Find the Wet Blanket at Red Orchid last April. She's younger than Kingston by almost a decade, but that's just a number, she'll tell you. It's not about how old you are, it's about how mature you are. She started selling pot when she got to the city, at first just to make sure she always had some and didn't have to pay for it, but eventually she realized she could pay her rent. Actors like pot. Cheryl has a small, lacquer Buddhist shrine in her apartment, but she says she's not a believer in all the spiritual stuff. She just likes peace of mind. She still has her childhood stuffed animal. It's a cow. Oh, and she's from Iowa, because of course she is. Her parents weren't farmers, In fact, they weren't much of anything. They had jobs, but never anything steady. No career. Nothing you'd describe yourself as when meeting at a dinner party. Oh, what do you do? Uh, This and that. They moved around a lot. She can remember coming home from school and seeing their furniture on the lawn. Sometimes school lunch was the only meal she got in a day. She always made friends with picky eaters who would leave food on their tray. Her high school dates would comment on how much she hogged the popcorn... She didn't eat at a sit-down restaurant until senior prom. When she went off to college on scholarships and student loans, and people told her if she studied acting, she'd be a starving artist for the rest of her life, she told them, well, that's a part I can play. Kingston met Cheryl online. Their first date started with martinis at the pump room. It's been a pleasure getting to know you. I would hate the evening to end so quickly. What do you say we, uh, we go get some dinner? Cheryl was starving. They walked to Hugo's Frog Bar, where he ordered a bottle of wine, a tray of oysters, and nothing more. She wished the waiter would bring more bread. Hey, why don't we go back to my place? He asked. It's not far from here. Uh, I've got work in the morning. Work? He called her bluff. I've got an audition. Oh, okay. 
Okay, whatever you say. They sat in silence while he signed the bill. He sat back, his lips pressed tight, and he waited for her to talk. She thought he might be insulted. Look, I mean, it. we, we only just met. No, I know, I know. Look, come on, just come see the view, okay? Then I'll get you a cab. Good evening. What floor, please? The elevator asked him. 24. Their first moment alone, just the two of them and a talking elevator. She expected him to make a move. He'll come closer, he'll lean in a bit, but I'll just, I'll kiss him on the cheek and I'll say something about being on a security cam, but he didn't make a move. She leaned back against the wall, half sitting on the rail to take the weight off her feet while she cursed herself for wearing such high heels. Even with all that drinking, even if she couldn't feel her face, her feet still hurt. Windows wrapped around two-thirds of the apartment. On a clear day, you can see Michigan easy. It's too dark now, though. Hey, there's some uh, binoculars on the coffee table if you want to see some stars. As she took in the view, she expected him to come up behind her, breathe on her neck, and wait for her to turn around. And when he does, I'll just, I'll give him a peck and I'll ask him about that cab, but... Instead, he went into the bedroom and he came back carrying a conical contraption with an empty plastic bag on the end. Hey, you like weed, right? Because if not, this will probably change your mind. She smiled and she slipped her shoes off. The night had taken a sharp right turn into her comfort zone. Oh, volcano man, I see. Call me old fashioned, I prefer a bong. Yeah, well, smoke makes it harder for me to run the next day. I prefer it clean. You know how I... You know how this thing works? Yep, light goes off and the fan goes on. Yep, I'll be right back. Kingston returned with two full glasses and an open bottle of champagne. Special occasion, she asked. Oh, just another Tuesday. The bubbles make it hit harder. He pulled the inflated bag to his lips and inhaled, then held it out for Cheryl. She already felt a bit waterlogged. I shouldn't. The audition. He raised an eyebrow and smirked. Oh, you really should. She sniffed the air. It smelled like a forest. No doubt good stuff. She hesitated, reconsidered. She didn't want to disappoint him. He took another deep pull from the bag and leaned in to kiss her. As he exhaled, she inhaled. When she exhaled, he inhaled. She floated on the vapor. Her whole body burst into tingles. Okay, 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 she thought. This is definitely happening. At 2 a.m., Kingston rolled over and looked at Cheryl, sleeping next to him. The iridescent silver sheet came only to her hips as she lay turned away from him on her side. His stomach rumbled. He hadn't eaten nearly enough that night. He considered asking her to leave so he could head out for a late-night bite, but he didn't want to be rude. She probably won't steal anything. I mean, probably. He threw some pants on and went out for a burger at Mr. Yero's across the street. He woke her at 6 a.m. When she opened her eyes, she saw he had already dressed for work in slim-fit gray slacks, white shirt, and a skinny black tie. Hey, good morning. He kissed her and handed her a couple 20s. The front desk is going to have a cab waiting for you, okay? Thank you so much for a wonderful night. She felt sluggish and thankful that she was still stoned as the pot was holding off what she knew would be a killer hangover. Uh, Good morning. 
She grabbed the 20s, and Kingston disappeared into the bathroom. And no, thank, thank you, she called after him. She pulled up her skirt, zipped it, and shuffled closer to the door. Inside, she heard a toothbrush swishing. She raised her voice. I hope, uh, I hope I can see you again. The swishing slowed. Uh-huh, he spit. She buttons her blouse. Well, um, thank you again. Yeah, you bet. He didn't call. He wasn't going to call. But Cheryl called him. The day after Matilda dumped him, Kingston called in sick. He smoked pot and watched TV, ordered in some Malnati's and drank a couple skunked Amstels that he had forgotten in the back of the fridge. He was looking for political news, but they were only talking about the markets. Worst day since the Great Depression, they said. He snorted and thought, it's almost like when I have a shitty day, the markets crash. I guess everything is my fault, right? He let that thought fester and grow in a mass and stench at the back of his head. The next day, his pretend illness had turned into real illness, and he called in again. His boss was agitated. Get to the doctor, get some drugs, and get back in the office. Kingston didn't know or care how far his company's stock had fallen. The doctor gave him some antibiotics. Kingston woke up that night itching all over. When he turned on the light, he saw hives covering his body up to his neck. He spent the next day in the hospital, and he didn't remember to call his boss until the afternoon. It was Friday before he made it back to work, where he was promptly, professionally, and dispassionately laid off. And what made it worse is that it was all his fault. All of it. And everything else. Forever and ever. Amen. Oh, come on. It does not get any better than this. We are we are literally on top of the world right now. No, I, I know, and it, it's great, and everything is great, King. The, the champagne is great, and the hot tub is great, and... The view's great, and you're, you're great. It's just that, I don't know, I, I just get this feeling of, like, I like I'm undeserving or something. I mean, you know how I grew up, right? Sometimes I think that this life you lead that you've brought me into, it's just, it's just too much. Kingston once again pulls himself closer to Cheryl. He reaches beneath the water, and he sweeps her legs out from under her, cradling her like a child. Hey, what was that that you told me about your father selling your grandmother's jewelry, your inheritance to pay rent, right? All of the struggle of your childhood, and you don't think you deserve a little champagne and a soak. No, it it's more than that, Kate. Would, would you let go of me, please? He lets her legs down, and she finds a seat opposite him. It's the it's the paying for everything and the the ordering for me, like Look, I have done everything for myself, okay? I'm not used to having it done for me. You know? Do you understand? Kingston sinks down into his corner of the hot tub and focuses on trying to ease his erection. He can tell it's not going to be that kind of night anymore. No, not really. Okay, then, fine. That All right, that's fine. She looks away from him and back out to the storm. Actually, no, Kingston... I wasn't going to do this tonight, but I'm, I'm starting to think that we could, we could really use some space. Kingston tastes something sour. 
It clings to the back of his throat. He has the urge to spit. Space! He stretches his arms out in front of him, flexes his fingers flat, and then curls a fist. Deep within him, in a place he had forgotten, he feels a roiling ache. Kingston, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Slowly, Kingston slips under the water, and he holds there, completely submerged, the jets deafening him. He begins to count. 10, 20, 60 seconds, 90. His lungs burn, but he wants the test. He wants to see how long he can hold it. Three minutes, five. There are tingles at the edge of his vision. It started with a run. His first run since he could remember. Didn't even make it the four blocks to the river walk before his calf started cramping. But he ran through it, grunting and cursing, taking control of his body, his domain. The next day, he limped to Town Hall Pub. Sam put him on the door on weekends and shared tips. He also gave him some shit shifts behind the bar, weekday afternoons. It was enough to stay afloat. He studied for the GRE during the day. He kept running. 40 minutes. 60. He signed up for a 10K. Found some secondhand dumbbells. Applied to business school. 80. 100 minutes. A half marathon. He started school in the fall. He got more shifts on the weekends. Two hours became three hours, and he signed up for the Bank of America Marathon the following year. He left the bar for a paid internship. Another year later, he's a manager. He ran the marathon in four hours and 20 minutes. Another year, director. When does he sleep? When does he eat? His friends never see him. He doesn't visit his family. He doesn't take vacation. He doesn't go on dates. Vice president. The market bounces back. There are bonuses. He saves. He lives in the same shithole and puts everything away. He invests wisely. Eight years. He pays cash for his condo and he hires an interior designer. He can run a marathon in under three hours. He could quit his job tomorrow and live comfortably for the rest of his life. He is ready. He is whole. He is in control. Under the water, Kingston's field of vision blurs and narrows, but he stays under. Cheryl taps him on the head and beckons with a hooked finger, but he stays under. He stays under until he only sees sparkly darkness. Flecks of light dive and dodge. They flicker out and they flicker back. They spin and meld and grow until all that remains is a piercing white light. He tries to shield his eyes, but he has no body. He tries to close his eyes, but he has no face. He can only watch. Shapes form. Fuzzy, mud, a subtle gray that hardens and sets. The brightness abates. And there's his mother. And then there's Kingston. He sees himself. A fully formed adult, but the size of a baby. His mother gently swaddles him and he is content. She places him in the crib and hurries out of the room. She's gone, 
she was here and now she isn't, and she may never come back. Kingston watches himself struggle against the swaddling, his legs and arms bound tight. He shifts his weight, rolling, but to no avail. This uh, this is the worst feeling right now, the, the worst that he has ever felt. There's a there's a pain and, and loss and fear that, that won't stop, and he's wailing. A full-throated scream of a man in terror. And then his mother's back. And she lifts him up and she holds him to her chest. And she's talking, but the words mean nothing. The words, they mean nothing, but her voice rumbles in his chest and he likes the feeling of the buzzing against the tiny hairs on the back of his neck. She holds him and he can see her face and she's smiling and he's smiling. She's making noises and they're laughing together. She places him back on her chest, and they bounce and sway until all is darkness. And then she's gone again. She's gone, and he doesn't know if she'll come back. She may never come back, and again, he's trapped. He can't do anything. His arms and legs are bound. He's helpless and alone and scared, and it hurts. And now this, this right now, this is the worst feeling he's ever felt in his entire life. And once more, he screams into the darkness. And then there's light. And then she's there. She picks him up again. Her fingers trace the tiny hairs on the back of his arms, back and forth, until all is darkness. And she's gone again. But this time he knows. He knows how to bring her back. He has control here. He can exert his influence and get exactly what he wants. He yells into the darkness. A, a lonely, plaintive yelp. And he waits, but she doesn't come. He screams again, more insistently this time, full-throated. Not a complaint, a demand. But she doesn't come. He tries to move, but his legs and arms are bound. He's helpless, and she's never coming back. And he screams again, this time in terror. Nothing has ever felt this bad. Nothing will ever hurt worse than this. He is alone and helpless and scared and he can't move and all is darkness and she doesn't come. Time passes, or it doesn't, he can't tell. And then there's light. He cries for his mother, but he's silenced by a finger to his lips. Mary is lying next to him on the cold green metal of the cable box, home base for their games of hide and seek. They're looking at the stars, but a streetlight's in the way. She's gone, Kingston. I can make her come back. Mary shrugs. Dude, there is more outside this room, but you will never know. I can make her come back. The streetlight brightens, washing out the stars and shining on the ceiling. It's not about you, Kingston. He rolls over to look at Mary, but she's not there. Of course it is. There's silence and distance. The room is empty, so is Kingston. He clutches at his gut. Ain't somebody hungry? Matilda enters the room with a bottle. She picks him up and sits him on her lap. He greedily pulls from the bottle. That's warm and filling. He takes it deep within him, filling a hole. That's a good boy. He continues to suckle with all his might. 
and he can feel himself getting stronger. He can feel himself growing. That's good. That's a good boy. Very good. She pulls the bottle away. Okay, now I need some, okay? He reaches for it, and he pulls it back to his mouth. (laughs) Okay, just a, a bit more. He keeps growing, but he's bigger than Matilda now. So she readjusts for his weight. Okay, there you go. There you go. Now, all right, it's my turn now. She tries to take it away, but he holds firm. No, Kingston, come, come on, Kingston, I need some, okay? I need... He doesn't relent. He can't help himself. Now that he's had this much, he needs more. He keeps growing, a foot here, a foot there, until he's thrice her size. No, please, Kingston, I... Come on, I need this. He can't hear her over the sounds of his slurping. She pounds his muscly arms. She kicks and she bites. But he feels nothing. He keeps sucking and sucking and sucking until it's dry, until it's all gone. He holds it to the light and he frowns. Despite his growth in height and might, he has not been filled. An emptiness remains. He holds the bottle outward and waggles it, asking for more but it does not come. Where's Maddie, he wonders. This is her job. He looks left and right, but the room's empty. And finally, he looks down. Oh, Maddie. Kingston reemerges, sputtering and gasping. Was that really necessary? Cheryl asks. He wipes the water from his face and pushes his hair back. Uh, probably. Yeah, maybe. I don't I just need to think for a moment. He grabs the towel from the handrail to dry his face, taking the moment to catch his breath, holding the towel over his mouth. He looks Cheryl up and down. He notices her defensive posture, her arms crossed over her breasts, her body turned toward the door. She's ready to run, but he has no idea why. And uh, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking... What I'm thinking is, is that you should marry me. Cheryl raises an eyebrow and cocks her head. Are are you... That's... That's what you're thinking. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, that's what I said, right? Oh, and with such conviction... Kingston can feel the distance between them growing, but he can't let the thought linger. He can't let the doubt overcome him. He can control this. He can control this. Marry me, he commanded. She laughs at him. (laughs) Okay, hold on. Let me get under there and see what you saw, all right? Yeah, fine. I'll wait. Uh, Dude, I don't get it. You don't even like me. I mean, you know, you like my body, but not me. What? Of course I do. I mean, why else would I do all of, of this? He picks up the champagne bottle and drops it in the bucket and he holds his arms out and turns back and forth in the pool, gesturing to the sky and the deck. The storm rumbles closer. I just got finished telling you how uncomfortable it all makes me. Look at this! She stands up and points at her chest. This tiny little Dolce and Gabbana you got me? This this bikini that no one asked you for? You got it so that I had no excuse not to come up here with you. That's champagne for me? Kingston, do you think I don't notice that you're always feeding me drinks? You don't have to do that, okay? I, I want to have sex with you, or, you know, I did. But every now and then, I'd like to be sober when I'm doing it. I mean, look, you may not realize this, but, I mean, you might you might be completely oblivious to it, but 
You don't do this stuff for me. Okay, none of this is for me. Is this not what you want? To live comfortably after all that you've dealt with? Cheryl, I can give you that. I can give you everything you have ever wanted. Just please let me. Kingston, just a few minutes ago, I was working up the courage to ask if we could take a break so I could sort some shit out. I mean, living this opulent life with you for the past few months, its it's been wild, okay? But it also brings up some really old shit. Things that I haven't thought about in years. Things I had forgotten. And now you're here with answers like, here, I fixed this for you, but that is not how it works. You don't just fix it. Kingston doesn't answer for a while. He sits in his corner of the tub, lips tight, scowling. Rain starts to fall. Cheryl grabs her towel. Hey, we should get inside. That storm's looking nasty. No, stay here. We're not done. King, we can talk more inside. No, we're going to stay here. The thundercrack echoes through the canyons of concrete and steel. The rain falls harder. King, I know you're upset. Listen to me. Don't be stupid. Let's go inside. No, you listen to me. You don't want to do this, okay? I, I, am, I am very upset right now. But you are a comfort to me. So if you just, if you sit down and you comfort me, this will all go away. I'm not getting back in the tub with you. Yes, you will, or things will get messy. Are you threatening me? Directly behind his head, lightning strikes the Hancock Tower. No, but that is. And there is not very much I can do about it. But there is a lot that you can do about it. A wall of wind and water batter the building. The hot tub fills to overflowing. If you will sit next to me and reassure me and hold me and tell me that you love me, this will all blow over. Okay, I know it. For a second, Cheryl thinks he might actually be talking about the weather, but she dismisses it. This is not going to blow over, Kingston. The rain changes in pitch and frequency. Ice pellets collect and form flotillas in the puddles. Cheryl covers her head with her towel, grabs Kingston's keys and huddles under the overhang by the rooftop lobby door. Would you just, just do what I tell you and everyone will be happy? That is not how a relationship works, Kingston. You're not listening. I need you, Cheryl, I need you to love me. Across the rooftop deck, ice gathers in piles like summer snowdrifts. The sky turns green. Why don't, Kingston? I have given you everything. I don't want what you have. I have given you this world, and I have given you this life, and I have given you your beautiful body and your brains and your talent and the breath and your lungs. All of this I have given to you. So just love me. God. Cheryl, love me. Love me. Please love me. Love me. Love me. Cheryl hears none of this. A microburst slammed the rooftop, knocking her down and taking the breath from her lungs. She could see Kingston at the edge of the water, reaching his hand out and pleading. She could see his lips mouthing, please, please, but he wasn't reaching to help her. He was reaching to help himself. She caught her breath and shook her head, but he just kept pleading. Finally, she shouted above the wind, I don't love you, Kingston. She ran inside, 
the wind slamming the door behind her. Kingston breathed short, ragged breaths through clenched teeth in an attempt to calm himself. He ran his fingers through his hair, softly scratching his scalp, gathering his hair and squeezing, giving his follicles a slight tug. Behind him, three funnel clouds formed. With each breath, they dipped and withdrew, dipped and withdrew, in and out. He couldn't see them, but he could feel them. In and out. She's not worth it, he tells himself. She's not worthy. His heart rate slowed. His breathing normalized. Clouds passed by overhead. Green turned to gray, gray to purple in the setting sun. He dunked his head under the water and lifted his legs, letting his buoyancy pull him upward and the jets bounce him. She will live a frustrating life of unfulfilled potential. Quiet, desperate, and boring. Her dreams will remain dreams. He smiles, content with himself and his world. It didn't take long, really, after we evolved for the world to end for the exact reasons you think it should. There was war and famine and death. Finally, silence. In the end, the Earth came to its natural conclusion. But we lived on. And on. And on. There's no such thing as time anymore. There was a beginning, but if there's no end, then what's next? I have grown weary of my universe. I'm out of ideas. So are the others. They idle themselves, recreating their favorite moments, like grandparents watching home movies. There are no more horizons to conquer, nothing to discover. This is it. A universe of options, a panoply of entertainment, and all of it has been done before. No questions left to answer. No mystery to explore. This is it. All of it. I reach outward as far as I possibly can. And I feel lovers and families sharing an existence bigger than their own. There's love and love lost. And in their shared experience is a greater story than can be written alone as far as they know. But none of it means anything to me. Their love. How could I love any of them? They are less than me. I mute the buzzing at the edges of my consciousness. I shrink inward, pulling my universe with me. All of it, crashing together at enormous speed. I can't feel them, but I know. I know that they're all doing the same. Not that they had any choice in the matter. Not that they ever did. Faster, faster, the vast expanses of self collapse inward until there is a single point of light in the darkness, dimming, dimming. And then there is nothing. There is less than nothing.
Unless It's About Me. Part 5, The End, by Ryan P. Duke. Reading Out Loud is produced by Ryan P. Duke, Scott Miner, and myself. Our sound designer is Scott Miner at Lucky Dog Audio Post. Our editors are Gwen Fulcher and James Tania. Our editorial consultant is Simon A. Smith. Gwen Fulcher manages our social media, and our reader in residence is Eleni Papa George. Reading Out Loud is made possible by our supporters at Patreon.com, including Randall Anderson, Pat Duke, and Will Mitchkey. This concludes Season 3 of Reading Out Loud. I want to thank all of our authors and actors and people who helped us put this season together. Lacey Catherine Campbell, Lance Carbuncle, Selena Cipriasso, Robert Duffer, Natalie Duke, Lori Haverkamp, John Hugenacher, Bob Halsey, Tony Ann Johnson, Allison Pace, Janine Perez, Erica Price, Brett Sechrist, Randy Steinmeier, Sherry and Kiff Vandenhuvel, and Simbert Whittington. Also to our families and our loved ones who put up with us during this season, thank you for, well, understanding. We're going to be back in October with all new stories. In the meantime, please visit us at readingoutloud.org to listen to past episodes. Also, make sure you follow us on Twitter at Team ROL for updates about Season 4. Until then, for all of us at Reading Out Loud, I'm Brandon Paul Eels. Thank you for listening.